What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, we're continuing through Jacob's life, and you know, if you look at Jacob's life, it would definitely make a good Hollywood movie, because it's full of things that Hollywood loves. There's deception, there's favoritism, there's clever schemes, murderous plots, vengeful marriages, and it's all happening to a wealthy religious family. But that would just be the start of the movie. It really just whets your appetite for what we'd be looking at here tonight in chapter 29, where it gets to this love story. And you know, every Hollywood movie loves a love story, but what better than a love story with some weird twists and some sick things that take place within it. We have a villain named Laban who's a better deceiver and schemer than Jacob. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of things that we'll see here, but really we're going to see two important principles uh, within this chapter. The first principle that we're going to see is that you reap what you sow. You know, throughout the Bible, we see this reality. We're definitely going to clearly see this with uh, Jacob, that he's going to reap what he sows. But the Bible clearly teaches this. Galatians 6, uh, 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting Life. And so here we see this universal law of God that you're going to reap what you sow. And so whatever it is that you do, you'll, you'll reap what you sow. So if, you know, in a farming sense, you, you know, sow cotton seed, you're going to reap cotton. You're not going to reap apples. You're not going to reap, you know, any other type of fruit. But that's not the point of this. The point of this is spiritually, you also reap what you sow. And so, you know, if you sow to the flesh, Don't expect to reap something good. Don't expect to reap something spiritual. Don't expect to reap something godly. If you sow sinful things, you're going to reap sinful things back into your life. And we're going to clearly see this in the life of um, Jacob. And and notice here, verse 7 starts and says, Do not be deceived. And I think this is so important because so often we are deceived in this area where Satan lies to us and helps us and says, oh, no, no, you can do this and you're not going to reap what you sow. Oh, yeah, you can live this sinful way. You can engage in this sinful activity and nothing bad's going to come back to you. But that goes against what God's word says. It goes against this very true principle that we see here. And something that's interesting that you see sometimes is that someone does a certain sin, and what they reap is almost identical to the thing that they did. Uh, and that's not always the case. You know, reaping what you sow doesn't mean that you always are going to reap exactly what you've done. But in Jacob's case, as we're going to see here in chapter 29, we are going to see the reality that he's reaping almost identical things to that which he sowed, as we saw in the last few chapters of what we've seen in his life. 
Now, reaping and sowing doesn't have to be a negative thing. It's actually a wonderful truth if you're living for God, because that means, hey, if you reap things, if you sow uh, things into the Lord, you sow godly things, you, you know, you're investing in that, you're going to reap spiritual stuff. You're going to reap good things from the Lord. And so uh, it's just a principle. You know, it can be a blessing or it can be a curse. It can be good or it can be bad, depending on what it is you're sowing and how you live your life. And so that's an important thing that we'll see here in the life of Jacob. But there's another principle that we're going to see in this uh, chapter with Jacob is that, you know, God disciplines those he loves. God loves Jacob. God's called Jacob. Remember, Jacob was chosen. He got the blessing that was given to Abraham and then given to Isaac and is now given to him. He has that spiritual leadership, the headship, the family. A lot's going to happen. There's going to be a very significant part of Jacob that now is going to be Israel and have the sons that are going to be the 12 tribes. You know, God's going to do a lot through him. But right now, Jacob's a lying, deceiving, selfish brat. And God needs to change him. And God disciplines those he loves because he needs to change us and he wants to change us. He loves us too much to let us stay sinful, messed up people like we are. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Notice it says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens or disciplines. You know, sometimes we don't feel that. You know, even when we're kids, you know, our parents discipline us and we don't feel the love. But it's, you know, for those of you who are parents, you realize, yes, I do this because I love you. I discipline my girls because I love them. I realize you can't get away with this because it's not good for you. You're going to continue to do that. You'll continue in that sin. It's going to hurt you. So I'm going to discipline you to stop you, to make it so that you're not going to continue that way for your own benefit. I love you enough. To discipline you. If I didn't love you, I'd just let you run riot and, and do whatever you want. But no, I do love you in the same way with God. He's not just going to sit back and say, my children are just living in sin, doing whatever they want. Oh, well, no, I love you too much to allow you to do that because I know how much it hurts you. And so I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to come in and I'm going to bring things in your life so that you'll stop doing those things. And that's something that we're clearly going to see God does for Jacob. Now, Jacob might not like it in the present discipline, but it's definitely going to benefit him as we're going to see throughout his life and the change that it brings. And so as we look at this love story, as we see the twists and the turns and the ups and the downs and the things that happen, I want us to focus on also these two principles. You reap what you sow and God disciplines those he loves. Let's see what we can learn here from Genesis chapter 29, starting in verse 1. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well, they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there. And there would, they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, my brethren, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. So he said to them, is he well? And they said, he is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Then he said, look, it is still high day. Is it not time for the cattle to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, 
We cannot until the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we will water the sheep. Well, last chapter we saw Jacob starting this journey to Haran. And remember, the the goal of this journey, the reason he's going here ultimately is to find a wife. You know, his mom says, you don't, we don't want you taking a wife here from the Canaan. We want you to go back to my family, Laban, who lives in Haran, and we want you to find, you know, someone from Laban's family. And so he's not only headed to Haran, he's also trying to find Laban. And so, you know, hopefully Laban has some daughters, and that's his purpose. And he's been journeying for about 500 miles, and it's most likely that he was traveling on foot. So this would have taken a long while, and he finally comes to this well, and there's these shepherds and you know they're they're gathering the sheep to give them water and you know he doesn't know this area he's been in Canaan his whole life and he asks you know hey you know where are we here they, they tell him Haran and all of a sudden oh that, that, that's where you're from great that's that's where I'm going do you guys happen to know Laban yeah we know Laban oh wonderful it is Laban well yeah Laban's well and by the way that's his daughter coming now with his sheep to this well and so now he's just overwhelmed of wonderful, you know, I've come to Haran, I've come to see Laban, I've come to find daughters of Laban, and here's one coming to me right now. So he's all excited because ultimately he's there to find a wife. And he says to these shepherds that he's talking to, hey, hey, look, is it still high day? Is it not time for the cattle to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go and feed them. Basically, Jacob's trying to get rid of him. Rachel's coming, and I want to have this conversation with her. I'm looking for a wife here. Hey, guys, isn't it time to like you know do something with these sheep? Get him out of here, you know, so I can have this alone time with Rachel. And they tell him, well, you know, we can't go yet until the stone has been rolled away from the well's mouth. And so while they're having this conversation, Rachel finally shows up to the well. And notice now how Jacob responds, verse nine. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son, So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are bone, my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. So here is the start of this love story that we see here in this chapter. And it starts great, you know. Uh, Jacob, he's come, he's come for a wife, he's come for someone who's related to Laban, and man, it's just all there. He shows up, he's at this well, and here is Laban's daughter, Rachel, coming, and we're going to find out that she's also really beautiful, and so here she is, he sees her, and notice what he does. He, he does something that, you know, a lot of guys try to do as they're seeking to impress women. You know, in order for these sheep to be given water, you know, these wells were quite large, and they were covered with a stone that would have been quite large as well. And notice these other shepherds are waiting for someone to move the stone so that they can water their sheep. And so Rachel's there with her sheep. And notice what Jacob does. All by himself, he goes and you know wants to show off his strength. And he moves this stone off of the well. And then he waters all the sheep 
of uh, Rachel that she has there, which would have been, you know, a big deal as well. But, you know, he, he's trying to impress her and he does this macho display. But then right after this, he kind of shows his sensitive uh, side as well because he comes over and he kisses her. And whether he's kissing her on the lips or he's just giving her a typical kiss uh, in that time, because we're going to see that Laban comes and kisses him and more likely a kiss on the cheek. But, you know, it could have been a kiss on the lips. But he kisses her and then he weeps. You know, and it's a weeping more of like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that this has all come together like this. You know, I found the woman that I was looking for and, the, you know, kind of just God brought it all together. And, you know, he does this and he explains to Rachel who he is. Uh, and hey, you know, my mom is your dad's sister. And she's like, oh my goodness, she runs home to Laban, her dad, and she tells Laban and Laban comes out to the well and he hugs Jacob and, you know, um, you know, says to him, surely you are both my bone and of my flesh. And Jacob gets to stay with them for a month. So everything's great. I mean, he finds the woman he's looking for, you know, the father is pleased that he's there and says, you can stay with us. And so things are, are looking good right now for Jacob, but they're about to change. He's about to reap what he has sowed. He's about to receive some discipline from the Lord uh, to help him change. And, you know, we're going to see him as so often we all kind of face what we consider the the school of hard knocks where we have lessons in life that we need to learn and he's about to receive them from uncle laban who is going to give him a 20 year uh free postgraduate education so verse 15 says this then laban said to jacob because you are my relative should you therefore serve me for nothing tell me what should your wages be well, now we start to see Uncle Laban and his clever deception that he does. And notice here, you know, what he says here, he, how he approaches this subject of service, because who said anything about serving? Jacob surely hasn't brought it up. Uh, but now Laban brings it up in this kind of tactful way. I, I don't want you to work for nothing, Jacob. So, you know, what am I going to pay you as you serve me? Oh, I'm serving you. Okay, yeah, well, let, let, let's figure this out then. And so, you know, you've been here for a month for free, buddy. Now it's time for you to earn your keep. You're going to work for me. Uh, and so Jacob is in this situation, and now he's thinking, hey, this is an opportunity, an opportunity for me because I've come here for a wife. And so now he's going to take this opportunity to make a deal with Laban. Notice what the deal is, verses 16 through 20. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of his love. He had for her. So here's an important part of the story. Laban, he has two daughters. 
The oldest daughter is Leah. The younger daughter is Rachel. And we're told a little bit about their looks. And this is going to be another kind of important part of our story. First, we're told about Leah. It says that her eyes were delicate. And and that word can be translated in different ways. Some of your translations might have it weak. Uh, And so, you know, there's been kind of different thoughts here about her. Um, In the translation of delicate, it actually could mean that her eyes were beautiful. But the biggest thing here is, is notice the contrast. Those who say weak, it's just kind of like she was just ugly all over. But the contrast is, notice this, you know, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So even if the delicate eyes were saying that Leah's eyes were beautiful, that's kind of saying, well, that's kind of all she had. But Rachel, you know, she had it all. She was beautiful in form and appearance. And so in comparing the two, you kind of have ugly Leah and beautiful Rachel. And that's kind of the situation that, you know, these sisters are faced with. And because of this, it's possible, we're not told, but, you know, as we see, you know, in future chapters coming up, that there was some rivalry, some competitiveness, and it wouldn't be a big stretch. I mean, surely, you know, a lot of siblings, especially girls together, if one's more attractive than the other, you know, there can be some jealousy, there can be some rivalry, there can be, you know, especially the older one is the ugly one, and the younger one is the beautiful one, and and so, you know, there could have been that going on. We're not told there is, but we are going to see some issues that go on with these two, and so this is a a possibility. Um, But Jacob, he loves the younger one. He loves the beautiful one. He loves Rachel, and so he says, you know what? When Laban says, you know, what are we going to do here? What should I pay you to serve me? Jacob says, here's my idea. How about I serve you for seven years, and what you give me is your daughter in, in marriage? That's what I want. You give me Rachel, and I'm going to serve you for seven years. Now, in that culture, when a man wanted to marry a woman, he had to give the father a dowry. You know, it was a, a you know amount of money that you would give, and ultimately, it was for the benefit of the woman. The dad would hold that, and if the husband died in the future, then the woman would have that money to fall back on. Or if the marriage didn't work for whatever reason, the woman would have that money to fall back on. Because in that culture, you know, the men made everything, and the woman went at home, and you know they didn't earn any money. So this was this was her livelihood if something were to happen to her husband. And so a dowry was important. But remember, Jacob's running away from Esau when he comes here. He didn't pack a bunch of money. He didn't take a bunch of stuff. He's broke. And so even though he is the heir to quite a big fortune that went from Abraham to Isaac and will come to him, he doesn't have anything to give to Laban now. And so, hey, I want your daughter, and what I'm willing to do is serve you for seven years in order for you to give it to me. Seven years is going to be my dowry, which would have been quite a significant dowry, uh, seven years worth of service. And so Jacob does this, Laban accepts the deal, And we're told something in verse 20 that's just a a wonderful thing that shows how much Jacob actually loved Rachel. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Notice what we're told. And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Seven years were like a couple days. I'm happy to serve for seven years because I love this woman so much and I can't wait to marry her, and seven years, I'll wait. 
That's a long time to wait. And in that culture, understand as well, they weren't going on dates every night and, you know, spending a bunch of time together. You know, they would have been very restricted. Men and women and who weren't married, you know, wouldn't have had that kind of time. There were definitely social guidelines keeping them apart. And so he's waiting seven years, serving. And he's willing because he truly loved her. And I think this demonstrates an important principle that true love waits. Jacob's willing to wait on Rachel because he loves her. He's willing to wait seven years. And unfortunately, in our society, fewer and fewer couples are waiting, waiting especially to have sex before they're married. Uh, oh, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and go for that. Uh, God made sex. It's a wonderful thing, but he made it only for those who are in a committed marriage relationship. And, you know, men in our society will tell women, hey, if you love me, you'll sleep with me. Or, oh, I love you so much that I just can't wait. You know, we just have to sleep together. We can't wait till we're married. And ultimately, they're not speaking about biblical love. They're speaking about lust. You know, and so we see here, Jacob shows this wonderful truth that true love waits. If these men truly love these women, they'll wait until they get married. And beautiful picture with Jacob and Rachel. And so seven years have now gone by. Like a few days for him because his love's so great for her. But hey, it has been seven years and it's finally done. And now he says, all right, Laban, I've done the work. Give me what you said you would give me. I want to marry Rachel. And so now it's time for the wedding. It's time for him to get what Laban agreed to give to him. And this is where the twist in the love story happens. All up to now, it's been great. Everything's come together. Oh, Jacob, you're such a loving man. You've served for seven years. You're about to get your bride. It's going to end happily. No, it's not. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I might go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her and Laban gave his maid Zilpha to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? So Jacob's now at this point where, all right, the wedding's here. The seven years of service are done. He's so excited. I'm finally going to get to marry this woman that I love so much. And Laban arranges this wedding ceremony. But instead of giving Rachel to Jacob as a wife, Laban does something very deceitful. He waits till after the ceremony. He waits till it's dark. And he brings to Jacob, who Jacob thinks is Rachel, but actually it's the older, uglier daughter, Leah. Now, Jacob doesn't know it's Leda until after they sleep together and after it's morning time. And some people read this and think, come on, how in the world could you not know that this was a different girl? And let's take a few things into consideration. First of all, in that culture, uh, when getting married, you would wear a veil. Uh, and so, you know, when she came into the room, Leah would have been veiled, and so he wouldn't have known. Uh, There's no electricity back then, so it can be very dark. The only thing they would have would be candles. You know, and Laban, as the deceiver he is, he could have arranged the room to be quite dark so that, you know, Jacob wouldn't really be able to see very well. And it's also very likely that Jacob had a lot to drink 
He just had a wedding. I'm sure he had wine. You know, so he would have been a little bit maybe drunk. And so all these things coming together, you can see possible easily for him to be thinking it's one girl. And, you know, all right, this is great. Then he wakes up, rolls over, and it's Leah. Now, three people here you kind of have to think about that this would have been horrible for and what's going on with all of them. The first one I want you to think about is Leah. Because the only way this plan works is if she goes along with it. Because all she has to do is right when they're alone, hey, hey, wait a second, before we move forward, you need to know it's Leah, not Rachel. And if she would have said that to Jacob, things would have stopped and he would have gone and had his conversation with Laban right then. So she has to be willing to move forward with this in order for this plan to work. Now, we're not given any insight as to why she chooses to do this. Um, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt and look at one aspect of it, but there's really two possibilities. The one is, hey, in that society, if dad says you do this, especially as a girl, you do it. Uh, even if you think this is horrible, this is not something I want, don't do this to me. Dad told me to, so I'm going to do it. So out of fear for the father, reverence for the father, he's the authority. He tells me to do it. I got to do it. That's likely what transpires here because she's put with a man that, you know, most likely she doesn't want to be with. She knows that he doesn't want to be with her. Uh, and so, you know, there's that side of it. And then she's completely an innocent victim in all this. Or there's another side that there is a possibility that there was a little bit of a rivalry going on between her and her sister, that there was this competitiveness going on, that maybe even after seven years of being around Jacob, she had some feelings for him, or just the fact of, hey, my sister, the beautiful one, gets the guys and I don't. And so, you know what? I'm going to get this man before she does, or maybe this is my only chance to be married. Who, who knows what have, you know, could have gone through her mind to make her a willing accomplice, but I'm going to lean, since the Bible doesn't tell us, to give her the benefit of the doubt and just say she did it because dad forced her to. Um, but there obviously could have been some other motivations that are in there. But, you know, imagine how Rachel must have felt. You know, even if Leah was forced to do this, we're going to see her relationship with Rachel now is messed up for life. And you would understand why. Uh, and so if Leah was complicit in this and she was willing and she was like, yeah, I'm getting at you, then the relationship's going to be even worse. But no matter what, dad has put them in a situation where they're never going to have a good relationship anymore because he's given her, Leah, to the, you know, Rachel, this is my man. He served seven years for me. We love each other. And what are you doing, dad? Obviously, she would be super furious with her dad, but she's still going to have a problem with her sister as well. Now, obviously, the one who would have the biggest shock in all of this would be Jacob. He's thinking, man, this is great. And the wedding night, I wake up in the morning and here is Leah instead of Rachel laying next to me. And if that were to happen to you, you know, how would you feel? How would you respond? Now, Jacob obviously is not happy. He goes to Laban. He knows Laban's the guilty one. Laban brought this girl to him at night. Laban knew who it was. Laban's the one who's designed all this. And he comes to Laban. He says to him, what is this you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Jacob was deceived. But I want you to think about now how he was deceived. And I want you to remember how Jacob the deceiver deceived his brother and his dad and think about how he's deceived now by his 
father-in-law. Notice this. Laban makes Jacob believe that Leah, the older sister, is actually Rachel, the younger sister. And Laban did this to deceive Jacob into giving the blessing of being a wife to Leah, even though Jacob wanted to give the blessing of being a wife to Rachel. Sound familiar? That's exactly what Jacob did to deceive his dad and his brother. Jacob made Isaac believe that the younger brother was actually Esau, the older brother. Remember, he put the fur on his hands and his mom put Esau's clothes on. They made that food. He was trying to get dad to believe that the younger was actually the older and it worked. And he did it to receive the blessing from his father. And he robbed his brother from it and he received it. And here's a perfect example of the principle, you reap what you sow. I am sure that after Jacob was deceived in this particular way, that he remembered back to what he did to his dad and to his brother. And maybe for the first time, he really recognized the kind of pain and hurt that he caused them. And sadly, that's oftentimes the case for us, that we don't realize how bad we hurt people with our sin until someone sins against us in the same way. Yeah, I was talking with my brother about a week ago in an interesting conversation. You know, when he was in his teens and early 20s, he was a wild guy doing all sorts of drugs, was horrible to my parents, was like the worst son ever during that stretch of his life. And just, you know, was especially to my mother. Uh, and he now has a son in his early 20s who's in drug rehab and basically doing the exact same thing that he did. And I'm talking with him. And he's bringing this up of like, you know, now I see things in a whole different light. I have so much more respect for mom and dad. I can't believe they were put up with me with such grace because I surely can't do that with my son. And he now sees things from a different perspective because someone sinned against him the exact same way that he sinned against my parents when he was that age. And he's seeing it from, you know, a new perspective. But sadly, sometimes it takes that where we have to be sinned against in the way that we've sinned against others in order for us to realize how horrible that was that we did. But we see this, you reap what you sow. But you know what? We're also seeing a principle that God disciplines those he loves. When Jacob deceived his father, cheated his brother, that didn't change God's plan to use Jacob. That didn't change God's plan to say, you know what? I chose you to be the father of this nation and to bless you, but... (laughs) After your behavior, sorry, you're done. No, God's still going to do this, but God says, but guess what, Jacob? There's some changes that need to happen in you, and so I am going to allow things to come into your life so that you will recognize the kind of man you are, repent and change, and become the kind of man that you need to be. And for him, the school of hard knocks, Laban's school was something that Jacob needed in order to do this. Now, I want to clarify here the fact that God ultimately uses what Laban does to help work in Jacob does not justify Laban's actions, does not in any way, shape, or form make what he has done justifiable or good. But the reality is, as we've been studying through the book of Romans, God can work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So the fact that God can still take something bad and use it good in someone's life doesn't make the person who's doing the bad thing justified in that. God's going to still deal with Laban and judge him for that. But he's using this. He's using this in in Jacob's life to help discipline him and help him to see his own issues that need to be addressed. So... He's come to Laban. What's going on? How could you deceive me like this? This is like the worst thing you can do to a guy. Come on. And now let's see Laban's response to Jacob. Verse 26. 
And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week and we will give you this one also for the service which you have will serve with me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. Laban, the master manipulator and deceiver, Jacob says, why have you deceived me? And notice his answer. Oh, oh, didn't you know, Jacob? In our culture, we don't marry the younger daughters before we marry the firstborn. Now, this is very deceptive of Laban. He didn't make this clear to Jacob in their agreement before. He's just using this as an excuse. But it also brings up an important reality that would have hit home to Jacob because it's a reminder of Jacob's own deceptive sin. He had dishonored the principle of the firstborn. He tried to usurp that principle by saying, Esau, you're the firstborn. You are the one who's the rightful heir of the birthright and blessing, but I am going to take that from you. I'm not going to follow that principle. But now he's forced to honor that principle by marrying the firstborn, Leah. He doesn't get away from it now. He tried to usurp it before, thought, I'm, I'm, I'm victorious. I did it. It worked out. Now, now you're going to have to go under this again in your own life, and it's actually going to bring lots of problems. But note the similarities in how Jacob reaped what he sowed. First, Jacob deceived Esau and his father. Now his father-in-law deceives him in a very similar way. Jacob ignored the principle of the firstborn rights. Now he's forced to honor that principle by marrying Leah. And Isaac and Esau were forced to live with the results of Jacob's deception. And he's probably thinking, hey, everything worked out well. Now he's forced to live with the results of Laban's deception. The results of Laban's deception are not done. Unfortunately, they're just getting started. And Laban goes on to say, hey, if you work another seven years for me, you can have Rachel. Which now, you know, Jacob's kind of in a place of like, well, what do you do? Well, so he just works another seven years and he receives Rachel. It seems he receives Rachel right away and then he serves seven more years and he has two wives. Uh, and Laban, the manipulator, he gets twice the amount of work out of Jacob than originally agreed upon, and he gets both of his daughters married off in the process. So Laban is a perfect example of a deceptive manipulator. He gets what he wants, but here's the problem. It doesn't work out for him. It doesn't work out for his daughters. And he might be thinking, oh, this is great, because I know that actually Jacob is a pretty wealthy guy. I know, you know, what he's ultimately going to inherit. Both my daughters are married now. You know, I got 14 years of service from him. You know, everything's great. Well, actually, it's going to turn out really bad for Laban. And even worse, it's going to turn out really bad for his daughters. He's destroyed both of their marriages. Their marriage is never going to be happy for either of them because of what he has done. And it's just this sad story that we see so often in people's lives when we try in our own deceptive ways to make things happen, the end result is always, it's bad. It hurts, but it's not just us. And I think that's the time to go, well, you know what? I'm just going to suffer through this. That's okay. Well, yeah, if that was the only person who'd suffered, fair enough, but that's not the case. Usually the ones closest to us suffer the most. They're going to experience some of the consequences of my decision to try and deceive and work things out for what I feel to be my own benefit. 
Now, the person who, especially if she was forced and did not choose in any way, shape, or form to be a part of this, the person who has the, the short end of the stick, suffers the worst in this whole scenario, is definitely Leah. She's thrown into a marriage with a man that she very well knows does not love her and does not want her. That's a horrible situation to be in. And notice we end here. Jacob gets Rachel, and it's very clear. It says he loves Rachel, not Leah. So, okay, now we got this problem. You have a relationship with a husband. He doesn't want you. He doesn't love you. He never wanted you. You were forced upon him. But now you're in this. And your sister is married to him, and he loves your sister, and he wants a relationship with your sister, and how horrible this situation in this relationship would have been for all of them, but especially for Leah. So now we're going to finish this chapter, and we're going to see something important, because she's the one suffering the most, but notice what God does. As he looks down and he sees the situation and what she has to endure through this Notice how God intervenes on her behalf. Verse 31 through 35 says this. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. He has therefore given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Leah is unloved, unwanted. In a horrible situation, a bad marriage, not something that she wanted or desired, placed into this. And this is a sad reality for her. But we see that God sees her, sees what she's dealing with, sees what she's going through. And God does something specific for her. Notice what he does. He opens her womb. He enables her to have children. And this is very significant. I mean, this would have been important no matter what, especially remembering in that culture, as we looked at with Sarah, as we looked at with Rebecca, you know, hey, having children was basically, that's the job of the the wife. You know, that's what you're here for. And the most important sex of a child is a boy. We want to pass on the family name. And so if you're barren, if you can't have kids, you know, we looked at that, how, how bad that was in that society. So the fact that she's Rooms open, can have kids, that's a good thing. But within the circumstance she's in, Rachel's got everything in her mind. She's got the husband, she's got the looks, I'm the ugly one that's not loved and no one wants me. But there's something going on with Rachel at the same time that God opens the womb of uh, Leah, we're told that Rachel has her own problem. She's barren. She can't have kids. And so this is a struggle that Rachel would have had, whether she had, you know, her sister married to her husband, you know, just being barren itself would have been bad. But all of a sudden God said, you know what, Leah, I see what you're going through. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to open your womb. I'm going to enable you to have kids. And at the same time, we see here that Rachel is unable to have any children. And, you know, many of you here tonight have probably experienced being unloved by someone, whether that is your parents whether that is a spouse, whether that is, you know, friends or family or coworkers, And, you know, you've experienced the hurt that comes with that, the loneliness that comes with that. And here we see 
a wonderful reminder for us that even when others don't love us, and we live long enough, we're always going to have those people who don't love us. What we need to remember is God does. This was the wonderful truth for Leah. I'm not loved by my husband. I'm probably not loved any longer by my sister. I definitely haven't been loved by my dad. But you know what? There is someone who loves me, and that's God. And he's showing his love in a tangible way to me by opening my womb and enabling me to bear sons for my husband. God looks down. He sees our needs like he did with Leah, and he comes to meet it. Leah got to see a practical you know, demonstration of the love of God, but we've seen one far better the greatest demonstration that we could ever see. God demonstrates his love by dying on the cross for our sin, by saying, hey, I'll send my son for you. If you can't believe I love you through this, then there's no more I can do because that's my greatest demonstration of love to you. And so we should be confident, even when others don't love us, hey, that's okay. God loves me. That's all that really matters. He loves me. And you might hate me. You might not like me, whatever, but I am secure in my love that God has for me. In Romans 8, as we just finished a couple of weeks ago, that ends with that wonderful truth that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Leah has her womb open and she has a son. Oh, wow, this is so great. She names her son Reuben, which means behold a son. And notice what she says. The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Oh, he's opened my womb. I have a son, Reuben. Oh, man, behold a son. If it was a daughter, maybe not much, but it's a son. And now my husband's going to love me. That's the whole point here. That's what she thinks. Yes, this is going to work. I'm going to finally have the love of Jacob. Rachel can't have a kid. I just did. And she's excited. She thinks it's going to happen. Unfortunately, he still doesn't love her. But God continues to bless her. She conceives again. And she has another son. She names him Simeon, which means heard. And she says, because God has heard that I am unloved, he has given me this son also. She's praying. Lord, please. I, ultimately, her prayer is, I want Jacob to love me. And, and God answers and, and gives her another son, and she names him Simeon. Lord has answered my prayer. Surely now Jacob's going to love me. But sadly for her, he still doesn't. So God blesses her again. She has a third son, and this time she names him Levi, which means attachment. And she says, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. She's living in this hope. Surely he's going to love me. Surely he's going to be attached to me. I mean, three sons I've given him. Look what I've provided for him. Surely his heart is going to change. He's going to love me. He's going to be attached to me. It doesn't happen. God blesses her again. She conceives and has a fourth son. And she names him Judah, which means praise. And she says, now I will praise the Lord. I want you to notice something here. The first three sons and their names show that, you know, the re reflect the pain and the longing that she has of, I'm desperate for my husband's love. But now when it comes to her fourth son, it reveals a new focus. Not all the names are going to be about, love me, husband, love me. You know what? I'm just going to praise the Lord. 
I've changed my focus to, to this to say, you know what, I'm going to praise God for what he's done, even in the midst of the fact that I'm still unloved by my husband. She's got to a point where she's learned to look past her circumstance, look to the Lord, look what he's doing for her and to praise him in the midst of it. Jacob might not love me, but God does, and I'm going to praise him for it. You know, when we're in an unloved situation, one of the best things we can do is get our eyes off of the situation, off the person who doesn't love us, and put them on the one who does. Focus on God. Focus on praising Him. Focus on the fact that He loves me and all that He's done for me. And it definitely changes our perspective and our feelings as we recognize that we truly are loved by the one that matters most. You know, God not only blessed Leah with children, which for her would have been big boys, which would have been even bigger, especially in that society. But you know what? As we look at what she ultimately bears for her husband versus what Rachel does, God immensely blesses her and uses her in the bigger scheme, the bigger plan of the nation of Israel in a much more significant way. Two of the sons that we see here are two of the most significant tribes that we see in the nation of Israel. Levi is the priestly tribe, the high priest, all the priests, the service of God in the tabernacle and then the temple. Very, very significant tribe. Guess what? That came from Leah. But there's an even more important tribe, Judah, the kingly tribe, where you can look, oh, King David and the other kings. But you know what? The most important king of all, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus came through the tribe of Judah. So God, as he looks down and he ministers to Leah and he gives her children, not only is it like, I'm going to let you bear children, but you know what? I'm going to make you part of the most significant part of my big plan. Which remember the blessing to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob, you're going to have the land, you're going to have descendants, but through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, speaking of Christ. And guess who that came through? Leah. She was the privileged one who was able to give birth to Judah, and that line would come down to Jesus. What Jacob experiences in this chapter, what he's going to continue to experience in the next few chapters as he has Laban do more things to him, God is using to discipline him, using to help him change. And I'm sure as Jacob's going through this, he's not pleased, he's not happy. He doesn't like what he's dealing with. But you know what? There's something that Hebrews 12, 11 tells us about the discipline of God that's important for us to keep in perspective, especially while we're going through the midst of it. Hebrews 12, 11 says this. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present. I'm sure we all can agree to that. Yeah, it's not a joyful experience. We don't like to be disciplined. We don't like the suffering. We don't like the struggle. We don't like you know the pain that it come brings into our life. But nevertheless, notice what it says afterwards. After the discipline's over, notice what it yields. The peaceable fruit of righteousness, not for everybody, but to those who have been trained by it. When you allow the discipline to train you, to change you, to repent of these things and to stop doing them, guess what? There is the peaceable fruit of righteousness that comes because of it. That's what I want when I discipline my girls. For you who are parents, that's what you want for your kids. When you train them, you want the, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You want repentance and change. You want you know a difference in their life now that they're not going to continue that same you know 
attitude or action that they've been doing that's sinful, and I want this for you because it's going to benefit you. But in the moment, during the spankings, during the timeouts, during whatever method you're using to discipline them, they don't like it. You know, my parents would say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Oh, no, I think it's hurting me more. But, you know, there, there's a sense in which I don't buy into the fact that this is good for me in the moment. But what the Bible is wanting me to see is, yes, it is. And the only way it's really good for me is if I allow myself to be trained by it. And that's what I want to end with, because I think sometimes we're stubborn. And we're going to see this with Jacob. He's done, you know, gone through this, but he hasn't changed yet. He hasn't really repented yet. It's going to take a while for him to get to a place where he realizes he's just as bad as his you know, father-in-law who's done this to him. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's guilty of these things. He needs to recognize it and repent and change, but he's stubborn. And so often in our sin, we're stubborn. And God says, I'm going to put you into this situation to reveal your sin for the purpose of you repenting and changing. And if you will, it'll be done. That school of hard knocks that I just put you in, you're good, you learned your lesson, you changed, you repented, you stopped, it's over. But if you keep resisting me, if you keep you know, in your pride and your arrogance and your unwillingness to change, then it's just going to get harder, it's just going to get worse, you're just going to prolong it, because I love you too much. You do this with your kids. I mean, if I'm disciplining you know, Scarlett or Eden... And they respond right away with repentance and a truly you know, sincere attitude of, I want to change. I'm going to say, that's great. It's over with. It's done. The discipline can stop. This is what the goal was. But, you know, so often you hear that, sorry. It's, no, it's not sincere. You know, it's not real. The attitude there doesn't change. The actions continue. You say, okay. We need some more severe discipline because that first bit didn't work. So now we're going to have a little more severe discipline. And, and sometimes that doesn't go until you are just prolonging the pain. And the quicker you come to a place that says, I'm wrong. I repent. I want to change. The faster all that stuff can go away. But the reality is God loves us too much to just let us keep going down that road because he knows it's not good for us. So he's like, I love you and I'm going to keep coming and discipline him for your sake so that you'll change. And the best thing that we can do is respond quickly with repentance, respond quickly with what God's trying to teach us, change quickly, and we don't have to stay in that disciplinary state for an elongated period of time. So Jacob's definitely a good character that we can relate to, someone that we see reaping what he sows, which we do, and so I encourage you, think through what you're going to do. Remember this principle. Don't buy into the lie. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. But also remember this. God's going to discipline you. He's going to get you back to the path he wants you because he loves you.